So uh, today I'm uh, talking about uh, some of the, uh, the hard cases I haven't discussed so far. My discussion is going to have a little bit of the character of what uh, kind of uh, come up to in some of the later bits of the uh, of the outbound after spending you know uh, 60 or 70 pages on constructing the uh, the thermal field and uh, 30. Uh, 10, 20, 30 pages on constructing the physical world, and a fair amount of time in other minds. So, a few residual cases like uh, culture. Uh, culture takes up about uh, two pages for uh, for uh, for Kana, and is uh, I mean the substance of I mean the, the central substance of the discussion is really mainly embodied in the uh, in the following example. The custom of greetings greeting through the lifting of one's hat is present in a society, or in some other sociological grouping, at a certain time, if, among the members of this society at that time, there is present a psychological disposition of such a kind that, in situations of such and such a sort, a voluntary act of such and such a sort takes place. That's pretty well culture taken care of for you. <laughs> That's pretty well going to be the, uh, the, uh, the character of my treatment of the hard cases. <laughs> five, five or ten minutes on mathematics, five or ten minutes on normativity, five or ten minutes on uh, intentionality, five or ten minutes on, uh, on metaphysics, and uh, you know, two or three minutes on a, uh, a few other hard cases, and, uh, and then we're done. <laughs> Um, of course, this is. Uh, I mean, the thought is to, uh, at the very least, not not to settle these issues, but just to give a uh, a sense of the character of the uh, the issues here, what the central choice points are, at least, and what the uh, what the, the biggest issues are, um, the biggest obstacles are to suitability theses, and at least uh, choices as packages about where one might end up. So there's a there's no getting around the fact that this is going to be frankly uh, ridiculous. So uh, I hope you can uh, at least you know, get, into the, uh, get into the spirit of the thing and uh, prepare yourself for what's inevitably going to be a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a romp. Um, okay, so uh, first, just a bit of background on hard cases. On the, uh, on the handout, I've just written a bunch of, uh, bunch of background, mostly uh, recapitulating stuff from the previous lectures. And uh, for anyone who hasn't been at them, to uh, fill in some relevant background. So, um, so the rough idea there is the scrutability, the central scrutability thesis says that some compact class of truths, so that all truths are scrutable from truths in that class. There are a compact class of truths, it's roughly an interestingly small class, you know, the classes, class of physical truths here serving as a uh, as one example of Carnap's class of phenomenal truths um, serving as another. Different kinds of scrutability relations as, uh, as labeled on the handout. But the central kind for our purpose is a priori scrutability. S, the sentence S is a priori scrutable from a class of sentences C with noble a priori. But if the sentences in C obtained, then S obtains. So, so far, I've argued for somewhat limited thesis. I've argued that all ordinary truths, that is all truths of a certain character, roughly ordinary macroscopic truths about the, uh, the natural world, biological, chemical, 
and so on. Well, setting aside hard cases, they're scrutable from a certain compact class of truths, the class I call the PQTI. And I gave that a fairly generous interpretation. Uh, P was to include uh, truths of microphysics and macrophysics and the vocabulary of final and classical physics. Q was on a generous interpretation to include phenomenal truths about conscious experience, secondary quality truths, intentional truths. T was to include that's all, a that's all sentence. And I uh, was to include certain indexable truths, but I am such and such, now is such and such. There's also a stripped down version, which I'll talk about a bit in, uh, in what follows. But I argue centrally that all ordinary truths are scrutable from that fairly generous scrutability base. Now, that leaves a couple of things open. One is the question of uh, getting to the rest of the truths, and the other is the question of minimizing the base. So a hard case is that. A hard case for present purposes is a putative class of non-ordinary truths M, such that it's not obvious that M is scrutable from PQTI, as so far understood. And there are some obvious examples of this, including the ones in the title. Truths in math mathematical truths, normative truths, intentional truths, metaphysical truths, or whether intentional truths count in the hard cases depends on exactly what you build into the base, but in any case, they're going to be relevant to scrutability from a minimal base. Um, so today, I'm going to argue that in some of these key hard cases, all uh, of the relevant truths are scrutable from PQTI in the first instance, or failing that, at least from, uh, from some compact base. I mean, the central, most important thesis that I want to argue for is roughly compact scrutability. There's some compact base. So if one needs to occasionally expand the base by uh, adding an extra expression or an extra class of truths here and there, that's okay, as long as it doesn't happen too often. Um, the focus, my focus today is going to be on what I call the non-conclusive a priori scrutability thesis. We're roughly, the conclusive a priori is a kind of a priori knowability that comes along with the possibility of certainty on ideal reflection, whereas um, uh, a priori knowability without non-conclusive a priori knowability doesn't obviously require certainty on a priori reflection, just knowledge. Um, ultimately, I think for some of my purposes, conclusive a priori scrutability is what I would like to argue for, but I can't do everything today, so the focus will be on the non-conclusive sort. And I'll also then be considering minimizing the base, moving from that fairly generous um, class of truths, PQTI, to some smaller um, class of truths, and ultimately trying try to see just how small we can, uh, we can make the relevant class of truths in the base. At the very least, try to get it down to something like that stripped-down version of PQTI, what I call in the handout PQTI minus, and we'll be looking at trying to, in the last, uh, last few minutes, we'll be looking at trying to minimize the base even further. I should say that this really corresponds to two chapters in the book manuscript, one on hard cases, one on minimizing the base. So the bit on minimizing the base will be even more of a wrong than the, uh, than the, the hard cases. We can at least see where, how the issues go. So in general, given a hard case, there's a few different uh, issues for uh, treating them while maintaining the scrutability thesis. So given a you know, few of the truth M, it looks like it might not be 
scrutable from, uh, from the base. Well, you could go, there's a few possibilities. One is what we might call rationalism. M is itself knowable a priori. Perhaps under some reasonably heavy idealization of our cognitive capacity. Second is the attitude of formal empiricism. Okay, M is not itself a priori, but it's nonetheless a priori scrutable from truths which are already in the base. Well, more generally, one thing you might try to do is to show that M is scrutable from what we might call non-M truths. And moral truths are scrutable from non-moral truths. If you make that case, then it looks like at least moral truths are eliminable from the base. And um, assuming if one repeats that kind of move, then with a certain kind of, as long as one pays a certain amount of care to make sure one doesn't get into little circles, then showing that much will be enough to, uh, to show that these things don't pose um, a problem for scrutability. Third option is the option of called anti-realism, to argue this putative truth then isn't true, or isn't determinately true. And the fourth option, maybe the last resort for the defender of the scrutability thesis, is what I call expansionism. Ah, well, there is a problem here with scrutability from an existing base, therefore we have to expand the base. And doing so will be compatible, at least, with the, uh, the compact scrutability thesis, again, as long as one doesn't do that too often. For certain kinds of more austere scrutability theses, like the fundamental scrutability theses, everything is scrutable from the metaphysically fundamental, you might want to be very careful about how often you make that move. But in any case, these are the options to put on the table. One bit of um, general argument strategy worth mentioning, I have relied quite a lot in the, uh, the second lecture and referred on a couple of, uh, of arguments for the scrutability thesis, basically what I call the argument from knowability, suggesting that when a truth M is knowable, it's knowable in a certain way, and I argue that when it's knowable in this way, it's conditionally scrutable from, uh, from PQTI. That was in the uh, second lecture. And in the third lecture, I argue that when M is conditionally scrutable from PQTI, it's a priori scrutable from PQTI. That was going by this argument from reconditionalization. I think the arguments given there were applied in the first instance to ordinary truths, but I think they naturally extend to other classes of truths. So assuming those arguments are good ones, then um, we've got maybe grounds for general inference from knowability to a priori scrutability. The hardest cases then are going to be those in which M, the putative truth in question, aren't knowable or aren't obviously knowable at all. And perhaps cases where M is in PQTI as understood for the purposes of those arguments, including, say, intentional truths, and one then wants to get, wants to get M out of a narrower class of truths. So we'll look at some of the, some of the hard cases I'll look at in what follows. Are the character that M isn't obviously knowable? Some will be where M is in the base, and there'll be some others besides. Something I should say just something briefly about the, uh, the methodology here. I could have started this whole series by giving a big master argument for this a priori master argument for the scrutability thesis, and then just applied it to cases. And this would have the character of you know, application and maybe the consideration of objections. And that's not actually how I perceive it. I see the way articulating the thesis and then looking at cases, giving arguments in certain cases. But so it's a bit of a case-by-case -case methodology here. Uh, now, so what I'm doing in looking at these theses now, that isn't, at these hard cases now, isn't so much direct application of the thesis as potential objections or obstacles to uh, the thesis. One has to consider every case 
on its merits. I do think, nonetheless, that you know, insofar as the uh, one finds the thesis fitting a whole bunch of cases, a whole bunch of cases that carries a certain kind of cumulative force in, in suggesting a thesis which then might have some some dialectical force in arguing for the uh, for the uh, uh, that the thesis applies to certain further cases. But the uh, but the force of this is somewhat attenuated. I mean, I mean another way. To, I, Another way to proceed would be to, get, to start with a master argument, and I'm, you know, it's not work I'm doing. Um, that is a way which I which I try to proceed, but it's not the way here. So once you think of this as then as really just going over the cases and trying to consider them on their merits to see whether they pose potential obstacles to the thesis. Okay, so the first class of potential obstacles are uh, mathematical truths, especially uh, unprovable mathematical truths. You might think they're true, but not a priori. Scrutable. So the obvious first case to worry about here is something like a uh, an unprovable Google sentence. Let's take the Google sentence G of piano arithmetic. Now the obvious thing to say in reply here is that well, a priority, well, I mean pretty obviously, does not require provability in piano arithmetic. It's very plausible that we know the Google sentence of piano arithmetic to be true, and in fact that we know it a priori. One obvious thing to say is we know it by knowing a priori that the axioms of piano arithmetic are truth, hence that they're consistent, and hence the you know, consistency sentence is, uh, is true. That looks like a fairly natural method of a priori knowledge. So a priori is not to be reducible to provability in this particular system. Now you might say, okay, but what about some more, uh, more complex system, like the Google sentence G of uh, system H, where H is a formal system that's devised to somehow model human competence of arithmetic, assuming humans are computational systems, and maybe there's some such formal system that models our competence. Well then, I think what, I, what I said previously doesn't immediately apply. It looks like it's fairly plausible that we are not then in a position to know H. Knowing H is beyond our arithmetic competence. Still, um, looks like there's no reason to doubt that some more ideal reasoner could know um, could know H, it's just that you know, there's a certain limit to our, to our complexity that's basically the corresponds to some limit in our process of iterated girdleization, the joining of girdle sentences and ordinal counting, but some more ideal reason, reason over capacities that go beyond us could. So under an idealization, no particular reason to doubt that H is knowable a priori. Perhaps so on for arbitrary girdle sentences. Now you might think, okay, now what about arbitrary sentences of arithmetic? Well, here there's a, uh, there's a result by Fetterman that's at least relevant here that says that any sentence of arithmetic can be proved in some system reachable by starting with piano arithmetic and adjoining Google sentences, consistency sentences, um, under an appropriate pattern, basically, of iterating through the ordinals. Um, so you might think, as long as any such system corresponds to you know, knowledge of some potential computational system, we'll then get a priority of any sentence of arithmetic. Now there is an interesting question here about whether this is somehow cheating. I've had some conversations with my colleague Happy Field about this, and Happy uh, thinks that you know, somehow one has to code in so much knowledge in advance into the, uh, the process of formal counting that there's a question about whether this really counts as, um, as a... Uh, something that someone could do just by starting with ideal reasoning alone. There's at least an interesting question there. Alternatively, 
But we're in the business of idealization, so there's a, a much more, uh, a much more uh, direct and heavy-handed idealization that we can evoke that I've already mentioned, namely an infinitary idealization. Um, as I mentioned a, a while back, you know, Russell has this thought that, okay, I mean, in principle, there could be a system which, instead of calculating the applicability of certain predicates, five to integers, one at a time, does so in parallel for all the integers at once. And then, if it's true, conjoins. If it's true for each of them, conjoins them and comes to another conductive plane for all them. Fire event. Um, you know, Russell says, well, we can't do that, but that's a mere medical impossibility. Um, if we're in the business of talking about what's metaphysically possible here to know a priori, it looks like there's no obvious obstacle to that kind of idealization. In any case, we're in the business of that kind of infinitary idealization already, so that's a natural thing to say here. So no, so given relevant strong enough idealizations, no obvious obstacles in arithmetic. I mean, there are some interesting questions about set theory. Um, in particular, statements of higher set theory, uh, the continuum hypothesis and large cardinal axioms, at least if those are to be knowable, it's not obvious. Um, how to extend what I said just a second ago to make them knowable. There are speculative things you might say, but I mean, there's a, again, there's two options here. One is the option of saying they're knowable under a relevant idealization. Second, the second obstacle, I mean, this, the second thing to say is to, uh, to raise the possibility that these statements are not, in fact, determinately true. I mean, I gather that among uh, among set theorists, it's more or less orthodoxy, or pretty close to orthodoxy to hold it, at least when it comes to a lot of large cardinal axioms. There's uh, no objective fact of the matter about, uh, about whether they're true. There was a uh, famous survey taken at a uh, set theory conference where they took a whole bunch of statements, of uh, mathematical statements, starting from 2 plus 2 equals 4, going through things like the Riemann hypothesis, ending with some uh, large cardinal axiom, like uh, you know, there's a measurable cardinal, and then asking people to take one of five options expressing their attitude towards those statements. True. False. Either true or false, but I don't know which. Neither true nor false, or either, either true or false, but I don't know which. Neither true nor false, or neither true nor false, but I don't know which. And apparently, I mean, so if, you're, if you think every statement of mathematics is determinately true, you stick to, a, you stick to the first three. Throughout, apparently only one set there at this conference, that's the first, uh, the first three throughout. So I just throw that on the, uh, onto the board as a, uh, the set theorist view. Um, in any case, so an opponent here of a, of a, a proponent of expansion at this point, an opponent of suitability from the existing base, needs a case that's determinate, but not ideally knowable. Determinately true, but not ideally knowable, a priori. And at the very least, there's no clear candidates. Here. And I will say, I think this is one of the hardest cases. It's not absolutely obvious in advance there are such, such, such cases either. So, worst thing, if there are such cases, what do we do? Well, it looks like all we have to do is to expand the base to include some further mathematical truths. Maybe an arbitrary set of further mathematical truths to get everything, um, in presumably at the very least, a non-recursively enumerable set. Still, to do this, I mean, after we've already got mathematical vocabulary in the base to handle things like statements of physical theories and so on. So this wouldn't require 
This would obviously require an expansion in vocabulary of the base, merely an expansion in the truths used to state that, uh, to state those truths. So it wouldn't lead, obviously, to any, I mean, there's no particular reason to think this would lead to a violation of compactness um, of the base. And this is a general moral, which will apply for a lot of the hard cases. Even if some expansion is required um, of, of the truth in the base, or occasionally adding expressions to the base, in most of these cases, there's no particular danger of violating compactness. Okay, so the next case is uh, normative truths. And um, I mean this to apply to you know, normative truths broadly construed, so a normative and evaluative um, truths across, uh, including moral truths, if there are any, um, epistemological truths, uh, aesthetic truths. But I'll take moral truths as the paradigm here, at least to start with. So you might think, okay, moral truths, there are some truths here which are true, but not potentially not a priori suitable from. They are from non-moral truths or from our PQTI base. Now, I think, prima facie, there's good reason to think that moral, to think that moral truths, if true at all, are knowable. And therefore, they're, uh, if they're knowable, then the previous arguments will suggest they're conditionally inscrutable from non-moral truths. One can know that in circumstances of such and such a form, the moral truths of such and such and also a priori scrutiny. I mean, the, the, the best argument, I think, for moral realism is basically an argument that, that takes off roughly from our knowledge of certain um, moral truth. It seems obviously correct that Hitler wasn't acting rightly, for example. I think, there's, I think there's, there's not particularly much reason to believe in unknowable moral truth, setting aside you know, fish-style cases and moral truth about a distant past and so on, which are quite compatible with Scrutability. So I'm inclined to think that, prima facie, there's an argument for, uh, for a priori scrutability here. I think, I mean, of course, there are a lot of delicate questions about metaethics in the vicinity. I mean, I think the moral, the a priori scrutability of moral truth is consistent with error theories, on which there are no moral truths, uh, non-cognitivism, various forms of moral rationalism, Many forms of moral empiricism, and indeed a lot of forms of moral subjectivism. If you're looking for a uh, for a metaethical theory that's going to cause some problems for um, for the a priori scrutability thesis, one natural place to look is so-called cordial realism, on which it's held that there are a posteriori identities um, involved between involving moral expressions and non-moral expressions. So you know. Goodness or rightness equals such and such a natural property is true, but knowable only a posteriori. By analogy to uh, the Kripke style identity, the water is H2O, is knowable only a posteriori. Still, I think if you take the analogy with water seriously, one thing that comes out of the previous discussion is that, well, even if water is H2O, is only knowable a posteriori. That's no obstacle to the a priori scrutability of water truths, like, you know, like water is used to work, and there's water in the oceans, and so on, from basic truths like uh, PQTI. Roughly, the water truth is scrutable from those basic truths in virtue of, roughly in virtue of water playing the role, um, playing a certain role 
that are played. So if you take that analogy seriously, that suggests that this view is very much compatible with a priori scrutability. Now, there's an extreme version of Cornell realism that rejects a priori scrutability. I think my own view is taking this analogy seriously and the reasoning underlying it, that extreme version ought to be rejected. I should say it's not obvious anybody holds the, holds the extreme version of this view. In my conversations with Cornell realists about this matter, people like uh, David Brink and Dick Boyd, it's, it's been pretty clear that in conversations with them, after going through it for a while, they've got no particular, they're not particularly opposed to a priori, to this general a priori scrutability. What's more important is the uh, a posteriori identity claim. Okay, so what are some other threats to a priori scrutability in the, uh, the normative domain? One thing you might think of is a, a open question argument. So I think it's pretty clear that at best open question arguments you know, might to fix some non-moral truths and moral truths at least leave an open question. These threaten only an analytic scrutability thesis, not an a priori scrutability thesis. A priori um, questions often pose Open, I mean, there's often an open question, a substantive question about a priori truth. I'll, mention that, I'll, I'll talk next week a little bit about the status of the analytic scrutability thesis in general. I mean, you might think that what's a priori is, analyt is, that, is what's analytic is a priori, but not vice versa. If so, then analytic scrutability is a more constrained thesis than a priori scrutability. It might even be that normative stuff needs to be in an, in an analytic scrutability base, but not in an a priori scrutability base. But for our purposes today, it's a priori scrutability that matters. You might worry about the possibility of ideally rational moral disagreement. You know, even ideal reasoners could disagree about the moral truths in light of agreeing on the non-moral truths. I mean, very far from clear that could happen. Also not totally clear that's incompatible with the uh, a priori knowability of moral truths. But even if one thought it was, then I think the, the natural way to go, at least for someone who's a proponent of the scrutability thesis is to see this as an argument for anti-realism or subjectivism of some form about um, moral truths. Probably the best argument for that kind of anti-realism or subjectivism on my own view. Third possibility um, is a view on which, okay, well look, um, ideal reasoning alone doesn't get you to, uh, to moral knowledge. Some people think, you know, the emotions, the sentiments are essentially involved. In, uh, in moral knowledge, and coming to know moral truth. So your Spock-like ideal reasoner isn't uh, going to be in a position to know um, these moral truths. Well, I think, again, ideal reasoning is defined basically in terms of the possibility of knowledge. I think if you did hold this kind of view, then the right thing to say is, well, okay, in certain cases, it turns out, perhaps surprisingly, ideal reasoning must involve the emotion or the sentence in a certain central role. You might think, okay, to be an ideal reason that you've just got to have a big brain. Well, no, it turns out on, on a view like this, you've got to have a big heart as well. It's, uh, okay, well, well, there you have it. Um, interesting consequences. So, um, okay, so not, so, okay, while romping along, epistemological, I think very much the same issues come up for uh, um, epistemological truths and aesthetic truths. I mean, I'm inclined to think that the, uh, the weight of, uh, the weight of considerations tends to favor realism about the epistemologically normative and when it comes to the aesthetic or the aesthetically evaluative or normative, maybe the, uh, the balance of considerations tends a bit more towards anti-realism, but I think at least the, uh, the set of options is very much the same. And in each case, 
not much reason to believe in inscrutable truths. Again, if you did think there were inscrutable truths in one of these domains, you'd have to expand the base a bit. Uh, maybe add a relevant, valid expression, a certain kind of good, a certain, a certain moment, a certain ought, and so on, but still, not much problem for compactness. One of the hardest cases, I think, actually, from, at least for scrutability from a fairly minimal base, is the class of intentional truths. I mean, I, I built them into the generous PQTI, but then we're looking for a, you might well eventually want to get them out of a, uh, of a uh, more minimal base, and there are questions about what to do about them. The truth is that S believes the P. John believes that snow is white, and so on. Are these truths scrutable from non-intentional truths, or scrutable from some simple base, like a stripped-down PQTI? Now, there are obviously views on which they are, you know, for a logical behaviorist or an analytic functionalist. These will be scrutable from functional and behavioral truths, or if we've got a bit of externalism in there as well, then not much reason to deny they're scrutable from functional, behavioral, and environmental uh, truths. My own view is that uh, it's very plausible that, well, I think there are narrow intentional truths and wide intentional truths, with narrow content and uh, wide content. This is something which fairly naturally falls out of the present framework in ways we'll discuss next week. My own view is that uh, narrow intentional truths are scrutable from phenomenal truths plus functional truths, not just functional truth alone, but once you've got phenomenology in there as well, then you've got enough for the narrow intentional truths. And the wide intentional truths, those that depend on the environment, are scrutable from narrow intentional truths plus non-intentional, plus non-intentional environmental truths. So that's roughly, I think it's a very natural view for someone to hold something like this framework to, uh, to hold. Still, there are various challenges to the scrutability of intentionality. And I think probably the most, the most salient challenge to the scrutability of intentional truth is the, uh, the Kripke-Wittgenstein uh, puzzle that, uh, that Kripke put forward in his book on, uh, on Wittgenstein, um, where the thought was roughly that even once you fix all these uh, non-intentional truths or certain matters of interpretation, does someone mean class or class, which is just left open by those non intentional truths. Now I'm inclined to, to think there's actually quite a lot, a big role to be played with respect to the Kripke Wittgenstein puzzle by a resource that Kripke dismisses very, very briefly, the appeal to phenomenal states. Kripke says, well, you know, maybe what would it help if you had a certain kind of headache when you meant, uh, when you meant plus. Now in recent years a lot of people have uh, paid uh, a lot of attention to the phenomenology of thinking and to the phenomenology of thinking about plus and have argued there's a constitutive role for Phenomenology here, there's got the character, phenomenal character, understanding addition, which is uh, really quite different in kind from the, um, say, the phenomenal character of a headache. Once you furthermore bring into account dispositional relations to, uh, to phenomenal states of this kind, I think you, know, you at least maybe begin to make the case that Kripke Wittgenstein puzzle is harder to get off the ground. One relevant diagnostic question here is is it really conceivable that you could have a functional and phenomenal and environmental duplicate, say of me, with different intentional states. Here, holding, holding fixed, not just actual, say for example, phenomenal states, but dispositions to have them under, under certain circumstances and so on. I at least think that's very far 
from obviously conceivable to at least, at the very least, where if one was given knowledge, if one was given a cosmoscope that gave one knowledge of an arbitrary being's functional state, its phenomenal state, its disposition to have phenomenal states, relevant environmental states, I think we'd be in a position to make very good, very well justified judgments about its intentional state. I think indeed to have conditional knowledge of its intentional states. Maybe there's a question about whether various bizarre skeptical hypotheses are ruled out. That would be a question for conclusive a priori scrutability. I mean, I'm inclined to think at least where ordinary a priori scrutability is concerned, the Kripke Wittgenstein puzzle can be overcome. Externalism, I've more or less discussed already, so I'll skip that. Still, just so you think that something like the Kripke Wittgenstein puzzle or some other puzzle does pose an obstacle to scrutability of intentional truths from non intentional truths. Then what's the alternative? Just so you think that, you know, Scrutability fails it. Well, the alternative then is to build intentional truths into the base. Just as we built some mathematical or normative truths into the base if scrutability failed there. So you might think, add some truths to the form S believes a P, just as base truth. After all, we had phenomenal truths there. Why not some intentional truths too? Or if you're on board with a lot of this framework, something like you know, S entertains primary intention such and such um, in the base. I think one could do that, but there's an obvious worry that arises once one does this, adding all these truths involving propositions to the base, roughly the threat of non-compactness. The idea that the base is going to get too big by having all these propositions in there, or it's going to be somehow trivialized. After all, potentially all propositions speak might now be involved in the base as objects of relevant intentional attitudes. And a couple of different versions of this worry. One is the worry that arbitrary concepts and expressions will be required in the base. You know, John believes that cats are not dogs. That's going to be in the base, and we're going to mention cats and dogs in the base. Precisely the kind of thing you're trying to get away from in, um, in requiring the bases be compact. So one thought here is that if we have to go this far, maybe it'll be the case that a few concepts or expressions will suffice to, to get all the intentional truths to be scrutable. For example, in the 2 d framework, maybe primary attention should be characterized using intentional relations to certain primitive concepts. If, not, if that's not the case, then the, uh, the residual thought might be that, uh, well, even if not, the concepts used here, like cat and dog and so on, are only being used in a highly delimited way. They're being, for example, they're being mentioned. You know, cat and dog is being invoked as concepts involved in propositions, which someone is intentionally related to. They're not being used. We're not stating truths directly about cats and dogs. And there's a lot of limitation on the way in which they're used. So there's at least a potential to avoid, to avoid trivialization at this point. So the second worry is the worry about trivialization. The point is, once you've got propositions, expressions for propositions in the base, um, you know, P, Q, picking out arbitrary propositions, P and Q, then there are natural ways using those to get all propositions out the other end. For example, just if we also have truth in the base, is true. Then we'll look at we have P is true and Q is true and R is true for arbitrary propositions P. And from which you could get this P and Q now used now rather than mentioned out of there and get all propositions out. Or just say if you have knowledge in the base. And you know, S knows that P, well then you, you get the truth of P out of that, okay, well, maybe you don't have knowledge for every truth, but 
then maybe we've got some kind of factuals about knowledge. S wouldn't OP if they investigated. Now, you know, you can at least see where there's going to be a potential mechanism to get us very close to getting arbitrary truths out of us, hence trivialization. So I think to avoid this kind of worry, what you're going to want to do is to bar mechanisms of semantic dissent from the base, like direct appeal to truth and reference, perhaps bar factors intentional operators from the base, like knowledge, and indeed restrict these uses of propositions, propositional expressions, to the right-hand side of certain intentional relations. I don't say, say these issues are entirely non-trivial, but if you are inclined to think that intentional truths are, uh, are not scrutable, I think there's some promise in uh, taking this kind of move and still coming out with a compact base. One residual worry is that uh, phenomenal truths which I've appealed to may themselves be intentional truths. If you're an intentionalist or a representationalist about conscious experience, you may think that you know, phenomenal states are themselves constitutively intentional. Maybe phenomenal redness, you know, the kind of phenomenal state one's in when one sees red things, is basically equivalent to being phenomenally representing the property of redness, or standing in a certain intentional relation to that property or the propositions involving that property. If that's the case, we may end up with some intentional truths in the base all the same. I think a similar issue is going to then arise as what happened in the last couple of slides. As long as they're specified in a constrained form using a limited vocabulary, I think there's not obviously an obstacle for compactness. Okay, moving right along, uh, we're now getting to uh, metaphysical truths. I didn't think about dropping metaphysical truths entirely because I've seen that this is really impossible to say anything worth saying within the, uh, the five to ten minute constraints. So maybe I'll just, uh, I'll just say a couple things very, very briefly. So all kinds of metaphysical questions about, you know, philosophers are, of course, are very much inclined to just want to think about, what about philosophical questions in my own domain? I've discussed some of the normative and value-laden domains already, but now there are also metaphysical domains, abstract objects, causation, color, consciousness, free will, God, material objects, modality, personal identity, persistence, properties, Quiddity, space-time, and no doubt many others. So I think, again, the, the range of options is fairly similar to, uh, to the range, range of options discussed earlier. And I, I'd be, myself, inclined to put different cases in different places. You know, some questions about the metaphysics of modality, for example, might go in the rationalist camp. I think it's very plausibly um, a priori that say, Lewis style liberal realism is false. Um, some, some might go in the empiricist camp. Um, the right metaphysics of space-time might really depend, might be a priori scrutable from fundamental truths about the character, the character of physics. Um, for some things you might want to be anti-realist, if one's, you know, one's an atheist, then one will presumably be anti-realist about, uh, about God claims. If one's a theist, on the other hand, will probably go expansionist and build God into the base. Um, for some things, you know, you might want to be an expansionist, I mean, I've already got consciousness in the PQTI base, but just say we were starting from a, uh, from a physical base, I think, okay, I think it's not at all plausible that you get consciousness by a priori suitability from, physical, from a physical base, so I'd be expansionist about consciousness. One other place in metaphysics where I think expansionism is, a, is an option to take very seriously is the question about quiddity, the uh, intrinsic character of properties of, of basic microphysical properties, you know. If mass is characterized as a thing that plays the mass role, then you might think there's a, uh, 
a certain kind of intrinsic property there, a quiddity that plays a match role whose character we don't know, and various hypotheses about it are left open. Maybe it's this, this intrinsic property, maybe it's that intrinsic property. I think that's at least not a metaphysical view which we can easily rule out, and I think uh, expansionism there should be left open. So I leave open the possibilities that quiddities might need to be in the, uh, in the scrutability base. But for many metaphysical questions, I'm inclined to think the right attitude is pluralism. Uh, questions about causation, color, free will. This is something which I discuss a lot at, uh, in another bit of the, uh, of the manuscript about uh, verbal disputes, where uh, the rough idea behind uh, pluralism is in the vicinity of many important philosophical concepts. There are multiple concepts nearby. Um, in the vicinity of the concept of free will, of freedom, for example, there are different concepts. You know, heavyweight freedom, which is you know, roughly being the ultimate origin of one's choices, versus, say, lightweight freedom, which is something like, say, the ability to do what you want. Or, in the case of color, um, you might want to make a distinction between different color concepts. I've argued that our color concepts can be seen as somewhat indeterminate between what I call identic color concepts here, heavyweight color concepts, picking out certain primitive properties of redness of the way things might seem to be presented to us by taking experience purely at face value versus lightweight um, color concepts, more like um, the kind of colors you might think still, things still have in light of, uh, in light of science, just involving dispositional or response-dependent characterization of color concepts, things that serve as an appropriate basis of color experience. Once you find this kind of pluralism, I think there's a there's a common pattern which I think is at least attractive to proponents of the scrutability thesis. Roughly, the, you know, disambiguate certain claims about the metaphysics of color or of freedom um, into a claim involving the lightweight concepts and the heavyweight concepts. So positive lightweight claims, like people have lightweight freedom, you know, people have the ability to do what they want. Well, that's true, but also scrutable from the base. Positive heavyweight claims, like uh, People uh, have heavyweight freedom, maybe aren't scrutable, but also aren't obviously true. Likewise, uh, for the color case, maybe we go a luminalist about the primitive colors, the heavyweight colors, and, uh, and physicalist about, say, the lightweight colors, and argue that they're, um, that they're scrutable. So that's the kind of move that needs a lot of defense. Still, this is relevant, at least, to the core worry, one of the core worries about metaphysical truth, which is about the ontological truth. Um, you know, existence of, uh, of certain basic objects, whether uh, concrete or abstract objects. And here, all I'm doing is recapitulating a line spelt out in, a, in another paper on, uh, on ontology. So you might think, okay, what about the status of truths like universal composition? For every set of objects, there's an object which is their sum. Again, I'm inclined to distinguish different concepts. Um, a heavyweight quantifier. A heavyweight notion of existence on which macroscopic existence claims can't be analytically entailed by macroscopic existence claims, and a lightweight quantifier or a lightweight notion of existence on which macroscopic existence claims can be analytically entailed by macroscopic existence claims. I'm inclined to think that this is a uh, this is a way of catching out the Carnapian distinction between internal and external um, questions in ontology. Questions internal to a framework and external to a framework. Roughly, the idea is that heavyweight quantifier is the one that's 
invoked inside the anthology room, and the lightweight quantifier is the one which is uh, used in uh, a lot of ordinary talk. In any case, so my own probably kind of view of these things is spelled out in this paper on ontological anti-realism is that heavyweight existence claims, quite really by, by parallel to the color case in some ways, heavyweight existence claims are not in fact eternally true, whereas lightweight existence claims are true but scrutable. Just say that, uh, okay, I'm wrong about this. I think it's, I mean, your standard ontologist, many, I think many people doing ontology are, are going to take an alternative view of these things on which there are in fact true heavyweight ontological claims which are not, certainly not analytically suitable from, say, a stripped-down base, the debates involving, say, market physics and phenomenology, and maybe not even a priori scrutable. That's not, not obviously notable for a start. Um, if that view is right, then what, where should you go in the scrutability framework? Well, I think the thing to say, then, is that your base is going to require more existential truth. You know, it's only going to have some existential truth in the base. There's no getting around that. Um, maybe, for example, some basic laws of ontology. It's pretty plausible a suitability base will have some laws of physics. Well, if you go this way, maybe some laws of metaphysics as well. If universal composition is a, uh, a true claim, maybe we'll bring in, we'll build in something like that claim to one's suitability base. And it's not as simple as that, and we'll need to build in a good deal more. But, I mean, Again, I think the key point is that it's not obvious here that we require any expansion in vocabulary. All this is going to be doable using the uh, existential quantifier. Maybe you have to stipulate that it's a heavyweight existential quantifier if you buy into that distinction. But there's not really a threat of compactness. So as with the normative, all that, the work was going to be done with um, ORT claims and the mathematical was going to be done by mathematical claims. And here the work is going to be done by existential claims. Um, no big, in fact, no expansion of vocabulary obviously required. Okay, so that's uh, well, I managed to run through um, all four of those in uh, less than 10 minutes each. So, give uh, us a little bit of time for a, couple, a few miscellaneous uh, hard cases before the uh, before saying something briefly about minimizing the base. Okay, you might think, what about modal truths? Well, I don't know. I, there's a very natural thing to say about, uh, about modal truths. Which is either a priori, I mean, you know, claims of metaphysical necessity are either a priori or they're a posteriori. There are a posteriori necessities, as suggested by, by Kripke, but at least for the core a priori necessities, it's very plausible that these are themselves a priori entailed by non modal truths, so necessarily Hesperus is phosphorus. That's something very plausibly a priori entailed by non modal truths that Hesperus is phosphorus. It's a priori. But if Hesperus is phosphorus, then necessarily Hesperus is phosphorus. And I've argued elsewhere that this pattern can be expected to hold in general. If that's right, then um, modal truths won't pose an obstacle to a priori scrutability. You might worry about another kind of modal truths, epistemically modal truths, in particular ones about a priori itself. You know, is it, uh, if it's a priori that S, is it a priori that it's a priori? But yes, and if it's not a priori, then yes, so on. Well, I think this basically comes down to the question of whether a priori obeys the S4 and S5 axioms. I think it's going to be a, at least a conclusive a priori. The S4 is, uh, is very plausible. S5 takes a bit more work. I think a case can be made for S5 for 
patriarchy as well. Now, one of um, the reference, I think, to the, uh, the current audience is the, uh, the questions about, uh, about vagueness, in particular, uh, for example, borderline cases of vague expressions where there are interesting, a number of interesting scrutability-related issues. And I think if one embraces a, uh, a non-epistemic theory of vagueness on which there are, um, in borderline cases, there is non-epistemological indeterminacy, then I think there are some natural ways to formulate the scrutability thesis here. One natural way to formulate it is to formulate it as holding that determinate truths are scrutable from base truths, not involving, involving the, the relevant basic expressions. I mean, there are a few other options here where I think the dialect, you know, the relationship between vagueness and scrutability on these theses will parallel various familiar options for the relationship between vagueness and knowability on different approaches. Where it gets really interesting, I think, is on epistemic theories of vagueness, on which, say, uh, certain statements of the form X is told may be true, but unknown um, in these borderline cases, because we don't know where the borderline for wholeness is. You might think, okay, these are not only unknown you know, claims of the form um, such and such person is told, but in fact, inscrutable from PQTI. After all, it's not obvious that giving somebody all the PQTI facts in the world is going to help with the kind of unknowability brought, um, advocated by the advocate of the epistemic theory. Furthermore, you might think that this kind of unknowability might persist on idealization. Now, I think uh, Tim, in his, in his book on vagueness, is just neutral on the question of what happens, whether this unknowability should persist on idealization. But there's a very natural version of the view on which it, uh, on which it does. This is, um, this nobility won't go away even on, on idealization. If so, perhaps no compact base will suffice. Again, I mean, you might think that adding a few expressions to the base will settle the status of, of, uh, of others. I mean, one way that might work is by adding certain things about truth or reference. Those would plausibly bring in trivializing mechanisms in any case. Those aside, again, I think there's a natural version of the view on which no compact base will suffice. To get the, uh, the tallest truth in there, you need something very close to uh, the tallest truth. You get the dog truths in there, you need the dog truths, you need the cat truths, you, you need boldness in the base. So there's at least, I think, a very natural version of the epistemic theory on which all this stuff needs to be in the base. And, uh, and this is nice for, for present purposes. So I think this gives us a version of a view on which the scrutability thesis just comes out false. At least the compact suitability thesis comes out false. So, so far we've had we've had a pretty hard time finding you know, hard cases where the suitability the compact suitability thesis just comes out false. Maybe the intentional case at least posed a worry. Um, posed a worry there. But um, okay, here's a here is a yeah, we want the suitability thesis to have some philosophical oomph after all, not to be entirely trivial, but could have exclude some things. So uh, I think uh, this version of the epistemic theory of vagueness is at least in serious tensions with the thesis. So, you know, for my for present purposes, then, at least it's somewhat yeah, fortunate for me that the epistemic theory is often regarded as implausible. Now, maybe that, uh, maybe that consideration carries a lot less weight with this particular audience than it, uh, than it, uh, than it, might, do, than it might do otherwise. Um, more, more substantively, I think, um, yeah, I've, I've heard Tim say that he doesn't want uh, special pleading for the epistemic theory of vagueness. So if there are principles which seem to apply in, in all other cases, 
then the idea is that we won't have to violate those principles, you know, make special cases for. Um, if there's a principle that applies in a lot of cases, then ideally it also applies in the, uh, in the case of, of, uh, of vagueness as well. At the very least, I take it that if the compact scrutability thesis is otherwise plausible, and there aren't other kinds of counterexamples to it, then that at least yields some further reason to reject the epistemic theory. And so either, I think, you know, the dialectic is, well, if there are some other reasons to reject it, then focus on, uh, on those reasons, and maybe then we can also reject it in this case. Or the epistemic theorist is left with a special exception in this case, which I think is a fairly uncomfortable situation for them to be in, or no such exception. Again, I think more like can be shown on this matter if one tries to articulate independent arguments for the suitability thesis, which I think could turn into direct arguments against the epistemic theory. But this is, in the meantime, it's not a bad dialectical situation for the proponent of the suitability thesis to be in. Uh, demonstratives, there are some tricky issues involving demonstrative truths, like I best read in things like Tuchuk's cases with a bunch of dots in one visual field. And, that's identical to that, and so I think you can make a case that these are not always scrutable, even from indexical truths involving I and now and what I'm now tending to and so on. So my view is about these cases is one needs one may need some further primitive indexicals in the base, phenomenal demonstratives for certain kinds of experience, like this, you know, this experience or this experience, and then one can fix reference to certain things in one's environment. At least facts about the things in one's environment which are the causes of these will be scrutable from facts about those experiences. And, I mean, there's a lot to say about social, metalinguistic, deferential, nominal truths, but I think that, you know, what, to, uh, what to say about that, given what's gone before, will be fairly straightforward, once, at least once one's got intentional truths in the, uh, in the, the picture. Okay, so uh, that leaves me with uh, five minutes or so for, uh, for minimizing the base. This is actually one of the uh, most interesting questions of all. And I will come back in the, next, in the next lecture to a number of questions about the character of the base. So this won't be everything I have to say about the matter. But if what's gone so far is correct, then maybe there's a case for scrutability of all truths from PQTI. And I think I've at least made the case that intentional truths are, I've just, you know, we discussed the case for intentional truths being eliminable from there. The questions then about uh, how far we can minimize the base from this point, how small we can get the base to be. Okay, so starting from our fairly generous PQTI, how, what are we going to uh, minimize? What are we going to eliminate? Well, we had macrophysical truths in there for a start, truths about macroscopic objects characterized in the language of classical physics. It's I mean, there's a, the natural thing to suggest here is that those macrophysical truths are scrutable, a priori scrutable from microphysical truths, at least within, say, a classical physics or maybe a Bohmian version of quantum mechanics, you can make a case that um, claims about space-time and mass at the macroscopic level just uh, a priori entail claims about space-time and mass at the macroscopic level, at least modulo those ontological wires that we discussed earlier. Quantum mechanics, I think, really does complicate things considerably, an a priori entailment there becomes much less trivial. My student, Colin McQueen, is uh, doing some really interesting work on scrutability and quantum mechanics um, at the moment. I think in this case, 
quiet tools will want to have to bring in experience as well. And the status of certain physical things as causal bases of relevant experience to get anything like scrutability out of that. But I think um, my view of the case can be made. Um, so, so scrutability of macrophysical truths from microphysical truths plus experience. I had counterfactual truths in the general space. I think there's a very natural view on which relevant counterfactual truths are going to be scrutable from things like initial conditions and laws. Now, microphysics, um, you know, Pete, just say we've gotten all the macrophysics out of the microphysics. Well, the microphysics still involves basic terms like charge, spin, and, uh, and mass. Um, what to say about those? Are they going to have to be in our ultimate base? Well, there's a very natural view on which they don't need to be in the ultimate, bat, ultimate base. I mean, there's a familiar picture on which theoretical terms like charge and spin and so on are uh, definable by our, by our Ramsey sentences. Roughly, charge is what plays a charge role with respect to certain old um, terms or observable terms. Spin is what plays the spin role. In the scrutability framework, that basically comes to the idea that you can specify all these microphysical truths in a big Ramsey sentence saying there exists certain objects, there exists certain, there exists certain properties that play such and such a role, and there exists certain relations, and have a big Ramsey sentence, the physical character of the world, grounded in certain O-terms. But the O-terms might involve space, time, observables like mass and secondary qualities, causal notions and experiential notions. But then at least getting rid of, say, charge and spin literally from the base, then, um, okay, we might have secondary quality truths, like color truths, in there. Again, very natural picture on which color truths of themselves, you know, truths about what's red, are basically scrutable from truths about where, when people have certain experiences as of something red, and um, causal truths. So basically the red things go along with roughly the normal bases for, normal causal bases for red experiences as of redness, scrutable from phenomenal and causal truths, and indeed I think maybe even a line like this is fairly plausible for the mass truths. What can we pick out as mass is roughly the thing which is a causally, ultimately the thing which A, plays a certain causal role in our physical network, and B, is causally responsible for our experiences as of massiveness. There's a question about the uh, that's all truth, uh, the one that says, well this is all there is in the world, there's nothing out of that extra stuff and about how that ought to be formulated. There are ways of formulating that so it involves a lot of extra vocabulary. My own view is that some of the best ways to formulate this invoke the notion of fundamentality. You basically specify a whole bunch of truths and then say, these are all the, uh, the fundamental truths. Or all other truths obtained in virtue of these truths. And uh, or maybe all other positive truths obtained in virtue of these truths. There are some questions about the, about the exact formulation, which I've discussed in an appendix. In the, uh, in the manuscript. I'm inclined to think that that's all you can get out of the notion of fundamentality. So where does that then, uh, where does that then leave us with respect to the, uh, to the base? Well, what base expressions are then left as our best candidates for being in, um, being in the base? Well, it looks like, I think there's no getting rid of certain indexicals, like I am now and those formal demonstratives. There's no getting rid of logical and math. There's no getting rid of logical expressions, at least, for and certain bits of the uh, of the base and the quantifiers and quantum connectives. Um, you're probably going to need uh, you're probably going to need some mathematics for the formulation of the Ramsey sentence for relevant physical theories. Although, you know, all respect to again to uh, half your field, 
um, who knows how, just how much of that mathematics might be eliminable. Um, I think you might need fundamentality for the uh, for the that's all uh, clause. Then I think the uh, the interesting hard questions are about um, spatial temporal nomic phenomenal expressions and expressions for quiddities, all of which I think have some pretty good case for being in the base. I mean, space, can you get rid of uh, spatial temporal expressions? Scrutable. Well, my own view is that spatial temporal expressions are, in fact, scrutable from a more basic base. Spatial temporal expressions work like secondary quality expressions. Roughly, we pick out space time as the causal basis of relevant spatial temporal experiences. If anyone here remembers the paper I gave on the matrix, here about uh, seven years ago at a, at a graduate student conference, I think you can see the rough, uh, the rough basics for holding something like that. But I think that could be a very non-trivial issue. There will be criminalists about spatial-temporal concepts for holding. In fact, you know, there's, some, there's something uh, conceptually fundamental about the notions of space and time not to be analyzed away. So chalk that up as substantive issue one. Nomic expression. Is a law of nature that or you know, certain causal and counterfactual notions. Well, I think there's an issue between Humeans and non-Humeans about the nomic. It parallels familiar issues in the metaphysical domain. I mean, is there supervenience of the, uh, the nomic or the non-nomic, what David Lewis calls Humean supervenience? So here the issue is epistemological, and it's one of Humean scrutability. Um, I think my own view is that I'm pretty strongly non-Humean about these things, so I'm inclined to think that uh, Nomic expressions do need to be in the base. But again, this is something which really goes, depends on very substantive further philosophical issues. And I can just articulate the choice point here. Phenomenal expressions, expressions for conscious experience. Well, there again, there are views on which these are eliminable. If you're a Lewis style analytic functionalist or a Dennett style alimbivist, you might want to get rid of them. My own view is that uh, I think there's no getting rid of uh, phenomenal expressions from the base, that phenomenal truths are not suitable from non-phenomenal truths, and there's the issue about quiddities that I mentioned already. You know, I think it's just a substantive question whether there are, in fact, true hypotheses about these intrinsic characters underlying the dispositions in microphysics. So open questions about those four things. I think these are actually the, the best candidates for base expressions. And then some other things I've brought up along the way, somebody might want to think about normative notions or further metaphysical truths or further mathematical truths or maybe even some secondary quality truths being in the base. And so just to end up, then, just to, uh, you know, I think what's basically going to come out of this is that it's a substantive, even if one is on board with the scrutability project, it's a substantive matter of what's in the base and where one goes here is going to depend on one's own philosophical commitments. Given my own philosophical commitments, I think the, uh, the best candidates for a scrutability base, for a fairly minimal scrutability base, is that it's going to involve indexicals like I, now, and phenomenal demonstratives, this experience, simple logical and mathematical expressions at least used to state other truths, although maybe not needed to state logical and mathematical truths, needed to state randy sentences for physics, for example. Um, the notion of fundamentality, certain phenomenal notions. Phenomenal notions may themselves be analyzable further into things like relations of phenomenal awareness and certain basic qualities. And we call it something non-Humean, certain nomic notions, or I think which has the best candidate for a basic nomic notion is something like the nomic modality operator is a, uh, the nomic modal operator is a law of nature. That. Now, your own, because your own mileage may vary, and there's going to be different choices here for different 
philosophy, did the talk next week I'll revisit this matter and uh, talk a bunch more about the different choice points here, with a view both to articulating certain principal scrutability bases here and, and seeing just which elements, for example, of Karmath, Alpha, Alpha project you might get out of this kind of program and what you might not get out, as well as in, in this, I'll be investigating some applications to uh, related questions in the philosophy of mind and language, metaphysics, and the, uh, the philosophy of science. Anyway, we probably won't through enough today to put a fair number of matters on the table for, uh, for discussion, so maybe I'll leave it there now. Thank you.